Join us as we gather around the hedge, where we dig into technology, business, and culture with the finest minds in computer networking. Hello, Tom. Good to see you back on The Hedge. And you have your fan and the world and the printer. I don't see, I do not see the plant. The plant is right here and still alive. This is going to be some sort of record for me. What uh, what kind of a plant is that, that? So that people know what they can buy and abuse as much as Tom does. Chinese evergreen. There you go. So your office must not be as harsh as China. Uh, I guess not. I guess not. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they die in the wild, so they're not dying in your office. So I don't know. It's kind of wild. So tonight we're joined by Terry Slattery. And Terry is sitting in front of a bunch of bookcases, which makes me feel kind of dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed Tom has just a few books in his background there, too. So Yeah, that's alone. right. I don't have any books in my background. I do have books, but they're like, over there. You can't see them over there. So <laughs> now I have stuff similar to yours, Russ. A good number of those bookcases back there have toys that I've collected over the years from various things. Uh, Just like what's hanging on your wall behind you. Yeah, these are all special memories. Almost all of these are special memories of some kind that are hanging behind me. My digital research CPM R eighty two version on five and a quarter floppy. That's that's important. <laughs> Let's see. If I move off to the side here, the lower one, which you can't see because of the reflection, is actually a Z80 card that I built. Oh, well, there so, you go. So huh. all, all the, uh, the computer and networking Jedis build their own computers, of course. <laughs> yeah, that's it. So tonight we're talking about ROI of automation. And I think it's a really important topic because a lot of people just don't understand uh, when they go into automation, it's a lot of problem space and they don't necessarily see what they're going to get in terms of return on the work that they're putting into it, or they don't know how to sell automation to their managers, right? I mean, it seems I run into this from time to time that people say, I'd love to automate, but I don't know how to sell this to my manager. Like, how do I sell to them that they should be spending time or allowing me to spend time doing this instead of fighting the fires if they really want me to fix like the CEO's email account or, <laughs> or voice over IP phone or whatever it is. <laughs> exactly. So I did a blog on the NetCraftsman website that talks about the return on investment of automation. And it was really oriented towards the business executive, not necessarily towards the technical one. However, a technical person could certainly read it and then go, oh, yeah, I need to take these concepts and go talk to my boss about these. And I can do that over lunch or, you know, in the elevator sort of thing. So what are the, the key things that are needed to that, that an executive keys off of on approving automation in your network? Yeah. So I think that's important because a lot of times network engineers complain about not getting anything done. And a lot of it's because we don't know the language of business and we don't know how to sell things upstream to convince people to do something. If we were in sales, we'd be in sales. We wouldn't be slinging bits. That's exactly right. And, you know, on the other side, I must say, however, that most executives don't ever bother to learn how a network works. So they end up being completely befuddled when the network engineer says, we need to do X, Y, Z. They're like, that's magic. 
I don't want to know about it. <laughs> or, we, or we need tool X and they don't understand what X does. Exactly. So let's go through your outline a little bit and just talk to us about, I think you said you had a few points on how to justify the ROI of automation for networks. Sure. It's easy. You go to xkcd.com. All techies <laughs> should know this website, xkcd.com. You want to look for comic number 1205. <laughs> and... That's pretty much it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, I guess we're done. That was all of five minutes and 37 seconds. <laughs> exactly. So what he does is um, it's uh, Randall Monroe. If I have the name right. And he talks about how frequently you need to do something, how long it takes to do that something, and the trade-off of how many hours you can spend or minutes you can spend on automating that task in order to pay back the amount of time you're investing in the automation. And, and is it a break-even or are you spending too much time on automation or whatever? However, while that takes into account manual processes and, and frequency of implementation and how long a, a process takes, it does not account for a whole slew of other things that the business executives take a look at when they're determining ROI. So let's back up first and talk about the Exceed cartoon. So they, so he's just talking about how to think about, like, if it's only going to take me five minutes to do something, and I'm only doing it three times, don't spend an hour automating it. Right, exactly. Because you, you've wasted 45 minutes. And but so there I'm is spending a, an hour on something, and I do this five times a day, there's five yeah. hours a day out of, out of the organizations, and maybe the team does this, not just one individual. So collectively, the team spend five hours a, a day doing some task. I automate that. I could spend a big chunk of time and, and get a big payback on it. I think this points out, actually, the, the cartoon points out the, a, a common problem, though, is that we engineers tend to focus on efficiency at the expense of all other things sometimes which is good. That's how you build good, well-working machines. But this, especially this one, it's, it's all about efficiency. Like you said, Terry, there's, there's other things to look at that might be even more important than the efficiency factor. Right. So, so let's dive into some of these other things. So there's process complexity. As the task gets more complex, the chance of human error goes up radically. So there, there's that whole aspect to it. And once you have an error in there, now you have to spend time doing diagnosis. What's the correct fix? What applications were affected while it was down? Just there's a whole bunch of, of repercussions that come into play there. And you may also see as these tasks get complex, senior staff may take an opportunity to, oh, I just know that this is the case here. So I'm gonna skip these three steps. And sometimes that's the contribution to the human error piece or sometimes that shortens the process and they're correct, but the junior staff trying to do the same thing takes longer to do that same task. So you have this wide variation and okay, the junior level person versus the senior level person doing the same task. How do you measure that? So process complexity and the expertise of the staff all figure in on this. That's interesting because you know I would say that going back to the first point about efficiency, that, you know, this is the state optimization surfaces trade-off, that the more you optimize, particularly the more you optimize locally, the more globally complex things and less optimized they become. And, you know, the more states you're sticking into the system, and the, that means you have to manage it and troubleshoot it. 
So that goes back to your whole concept of if you skip three steps because the senior guy knows what he's doing, well, there's information missing. This is actually putting technical debt into the system from day one because the system doesn't work the way you think it works, the way that everybody else thinks it works. It works the way one person thinks it works and not anybody else on the team because that inner working is not exposed. A very common instance of this is using magic numbers in your BGP ASs or something like that, using magic numbers for your metrics or something like that. Um, and if it's not documented, even if it is documented, it may be hard to find. So, all right, so that's your first step. So what's the next one after that? Quality control. So kind of tied in with the, the process complexity. Are all the, are all the steps being followed? Are you skipping over steps? And then the other part about quality, and this is really important, did you validate the network pre-change? Is it operating the way you expected it to? Pre-change, do the change, and did the change wind up resulting in the operation that you expected it to, your intent? You want to go back to intent-based networking. <laughs> yeah. This is really the thing. Check it ahead of time. Is it functioning the way it should be functioning ahead of time? Or are you just layering a change on top of a bro already broken network? And now when it fails, you have to go back and troubleshoot this thing. And you have no idea what the starting state was. This made me think of, there's a, a book called The Checklist Manifesto that talks about this, the, the whole idea of you know following processes and procedures um, very uh, literally and, and always doing the steps. And um, to introduce the concept in the book, they talk about how they tried to do this. They used this concept to drive down infection rates at a hospital and from a common procedure. And that example just has always stuck in my mind. The doctors obviously are experts. Obviously, they know how to do this stuff and they don't need somebody to hold their hand. But, I, but it turns out that obviously they, they do need someone to stand by them. Like you, you think that they're experts and they don't need someone to remind them of the basic things, but they did. And they found that when someone enforced the idea of follow the checklist, that infection rates fell, uh, even though experts were at the helm. And, you know, it just uh, speaks to the, one of the things about being human, that we're going to make errors no matter how smart we are. And there's a pretty good chance in long procedural things, the smarter we get, the more errors we make. This has been my experience with it. Exactly. That was, that's actually been brought to light a number of times in the medical field. Um, there, there are a couple of things. Washing hands. That one step right there made a radical difference in survival rates of patients. And, and there are a number of studies on that. And of course, the experts poo-pooed the whole idea initially because they were the medical doctors. And after germ theory actually got introduced and accepted, it's like, well, yeah, it does make a difference. And the other one is the simple process you go in for minor surgery or any kind of surgery, and they write on your body with a Sharpie where the surgery is going to occur. So that way you don't come out of, say, an amputation and find out that they amputated the wrong leg, which has happened. Yep, that's absolutely true. So, yeah. So a a pre-change step. Yeah. So, and I think this goes back to the complexity piece of it that you're talking about there, Tom, that you have to consider and what you said before, Terry, that the more complex the process is, the more important it is to actually follow the checklist and do the right thing every time very consistently. And so this, I think, plays into automation to some degree because, right, you have to think in terms of 
what automation gives you here as an ROI is consistency, right? Exactly. It gives you the consistency of always following the checklist without a human being involved in the situation. And that does mean that when you're creating the automation, you need to be very detailed oriented. Check the network state pre-change. Is it correct? If it's not correct, then bail, because maybe you didn't understand something or you skipped some nuance that you thought you understood and actually don't. Right. Well, that goes back to quality and knowing your origin state and the end state, right? Yes. Because if you know what normal looks like, and then you know what normal should look like when you're done, and the automation system doesn't produce that result, then you have a quality problem, and you need to go back and control that and make it right. Exactly. And this, this is actually something I've noticed in my career with people building, especially uh, native networkers who are learning to develop and write code, building automation systems. A common thing that I see is they have the idea in their mind. They never have documented it. They just know it and they know it so well that they just do it. And they say, okay, well, I'm going to sit down and automate this now. And they take it straight from their mind into code. And it seems a com- like a common pattern, at least that I've seen. And the problem with that is that they never sat down and wrote pseudocode. They never wrote down what they're actually trying to accomplish. And so it it morphs on the way out of their brain into the code. It loses something or gains something and makes it not true to what their brain was originally thinking anyway. And, you know, errors get introduced that said, if these systems are complex enough, these errors can be buried for years in these automation systems. And the only way to go back and fix it is to say, wipe it all clean, start over, write down everything you're doing and then write code. And then, then it seems like you can get to a better result. Sometimes troubleshooting and refactoring isn't useful. You just have to start clean because it's just too complex. The Mythical Man Month. If, you've, yeah. if you're starting to do automation, go read The Mythical Man Month. It's well worth it. There is a second edition. Design the first one to throw away. You will anyway. <laughs> yeah. So moving past the quality, what's the next one you have there, Terry? Application downtime. So as part of the ROI, if you're simply looking at the manual process in the XKCD cartoon and, and you've gone and calculated stuff and you don't take into account the fact that human errors are going to cause application downtime, you're, you're emitting a big piece of the ROI. What's the value of avoiding application downtime? There's a certain value to that. And you need to make sure that the executives are aware of that. So here is... You know, one of those situations where you might think you might, you won't have downtime, right? (laughs) That's always the the interesting fallacy to start with, isn't it? (laughs) I'm not going to make a mistake. That's right. How many people plan an accident? (laughs) That's why they're called accidents. (laughs) Not called, oh, I'm going to do it on purpose. (laughs) Or you just think that, you know, that everything's resilient enough and you know what the backup path is, so you know that you're not going to run into problems. Oh, yeah. Let's, let's take this core switch down because there's a backup switch next to it. How many times has that had unintended consequences? Right. Without considering draining the traffic first and or what's going to happen when you pull more traffic onto that single switch, across that single switch, or is the routing protocol actually going to converge? Exactly. Lots of factors. And is the backup path even functioning? Because you never use it anyway. (laughs) Yes. What does the backup path go through the primary path? (laughs) Which I've seen before too. 
Yeah, so application downtime, are you factoring that in your, your ROI calculations? So the next one is include all the supporting tasks. So in, in one example, we had a, a case where we were working with a customer and we were having to do a custom automation. This was not something where you could go use one of the existing tools out there. So we're having to go build something totally custom to do certificate renewals. And this particular organization had a lot of certificates. These are like SSL certificates running a lot of the websites and things like that. And this also had customer facing visibility because then a customer connects into the website and it says security certificates invalid because it had timed out. And they had hundreds of these things. So they were doing certificate renewals on a regular basis, weekly. It turned out that all the auxiliary stuff of checking their certificates, expiration times and all this stuff, was nearly 40% of the overall time per certificate. Wow, that's crazy. This, this reminds me of a time I wrote a piece of software that printed something on the screen. Every time I did something, it turned out the printing on the screen took longer than the calculations did. <laughs> so anyway, make sure that your ROI calculations include all the tasks. Don't shortchange yourself on any of that. So that was the next point. So I want to drill into that a little bit. So all the tasks, you mean like the whole business process, the whole flow of everything that you would do? It was workflow from the time of identifying, hey, I need to renew a certificate and posting something in ServiceNow, validating it, getting approvals. If there's a change window involved, doing something with that, the change approval process, actually making the change which wound up being the, the other 60% of the time, was actually implementing the change, checking it afterwards, and then closing the service ticket. Yeah, we might be inclined just to focus on the implementation because that's what we care most about. But, but yeah, absolutely. This is where I'm focused on my time. Well, what about all the other people that were involved in this process? Do you have any visibility into what their time was on the process? So when you include this, you have to include going out to other teams and finding out how they interact with this process. So this means that you can't build this automation as a lone wolf. Bingo. It's a system. A lot of times we, as technologists, we look at, we tend to focus on the minutia <laughs> because that's where we function best. Right. Is looking at the details and we're detail-oriented people and we get that stuff right. And a lot of times it's, it's more the system and looking at the entire system and how it functions provides a different perspective. So this is one of those situations where you end up being the guy looking for his car keys under the street light because that's where the light is. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting perspective. Because that's, that's what you know, right? You know your system. So you go out and automate it and you forget that there are other things that are working around it. And so you just kind of, you know, automate the part I know. Exactly. Okay, so what is after that? Opportunity costs. Okay, opportunity costs are very hard to explain, by the way. A lot of people don't understand opportunity costs. I was just talking to a group of um, college coders uh, in their first semester, and they kind of got a blank look on their face when I said, you know, using the network just doesn't cost energy and power. It also costs opportunity costs. Like every packet you send on the network also reduces your opportunity to send other, some other packet. Like it's not infinite. The network is not infinite. You can't just send whatever you want to. Wait, 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 wait. 
Right? You're kidding me. <laughs> you mean I don't have infinite bandwidth for my application? <laughs> no. Zero latency? No matter how hard you push, you still can't make it go faster than the speed of light. This doesn't work. So <laughs> it's only between here and India. How hard, how, how much time could that be? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So what kind of opportunity costs have you seen? Uh, like in, in real life, Terry, or anything you can think of? It's staff working on the stuff that's in the XKCD cartoon. So they're, they're actually running a manual process and they're doing this over and over again, or the certificate renewals. There's that one as well, all right? So they're, they're spending time working on this thing. There are a certain number of them that have to get done a week. Instead of developing new applications, working on the network to support new applications that are strategic to the business. It's a tactical versus strategic decision. Do I go work on the tactical thing, the thing that's nuts and bolts and, oh yeah, I'm really good at this. So I'm going to go work on that because I feel comfortable here. It's kind of like what Ruffs was saying about looking for the keys under the light. <laughs> I'm doing the thing that I really enjoy. Instead of looking more strategically, business planning, what, does the, what should the network look like in five years to support where we think the applications are going in the business? And doing that sort of strategic planning uh, and it doesn't have to be five years, by the way. It could be three years or two years. What's what's our what equipment should we be looking at buying in our next hardware refresh cycle? Okay, if I'm doing manual processes, I'm not able to go make that decision on what hardware to buy for the next refresh. Which is more important? There's this other dynamic here that's this the urgency versus importance of a decision or a has to be done. So that, that's another way to look at it. Is it urgent or is it important? So for instance, in terms of opportunity costs, one thing you might say is, well, right now I'm using vendor gear X, but when I automate, I should make sure that I can use vendor gear Y because I actually don't know if I'm ever going to switch. I shouldn't make those kinds of assumptions in my automation system because I'm just creating technical debt that's got to be refactored or fixed in a couple of years. You just don't know. At this point, so leave the leave the future open to some degree. Is that the kind of thing you're thinking about as well? I'm not sure I followed you on that one. Well, let's say that you build Ansible or SaltStack for a for a particular vendor's switch or router CLI. Vendor A, okay. Yeah, vendor A, and then in five years you decide to switch to vendor B or buy boxes from vendor B, but your entire automation system is set up specifically around vendor A's CLI. Well, hopefully you have a little bit of software development <laughs> and you realize that software abstraction is your friend. You should be using that as much as you can. Right. But I, I kind of put this into the opportunity cost bucket as well, because you're kind of blocking your ability to future change things in the future. You're cutting yourself off from opportunities that you could be getting later on down the road. I'll agree with that. Yes. Okay. Another thing I thought of is if you're, constantly putting out fires and you don't have time to look at what's next. Well, when the refresh cycle is upon you, you have to do it. That all that research time that you could have captured before is now gone and in the past and you can't go back and reclaim it. So now you have to, you have this short, very short window usually, Oh, we got a refresh. We, we got budget is going to go away, you know, is going to evaporate. So we have to buy this now. And you end up giving up a lot of things. I think when you're in that position, you give up a leverage against your suppliers, you give up the, the opportunity to potentially refactor your architecture. 
that only seems to come with some designs that only seems to come on refresh cycles. Those are things when I think of opportunity cost, that's what I'm thinking of. Is that something that, that you've seen Terry? Absolutely. And what happens in the scenario that you're describing is a task such as planning for the next refresh went from urgent, went, went from important. It's important for me to do it, but it's not urgent that I do it right now. And then when it transitioned to urgent, it's like, but I don't have time to go do the homework to decide who the next vendor is. So I'm just going to continue with vendor A because I don't have time to go research vendor B and determine, oh, if, if I went with vendor B, our network would be hmm, 10, 20% better. It'd be easier to manage, uh, whatever the factors are. Okay. So next on your list, after opportunity cost, things that you need to consider in doing the ROI of automation. It's actually the last one on the list, competitiveness. We have made it through most of them. So competitiveness. So what happens if you delay your implementation? All right. I'm, I'm still going to use this manual process because I haven't been able to convince the, the guys up the stack or the girls up the stack that I need to go do this automation. I need to spend some time. I need to spend some money. Uh, I need to spend some effort, maybe some consultants to, to do some automation in the network so that we're spending more time on strategic things. So this delays the transition of the business. Now I'm thinking more business here than say an organization that maybe doesn't have a business driver. I'm thinking government here particularly. So the delay in implementation, what's the impact on the business and its ability to compete in the marketplace because other organizations are looking at it with a different view and going, oh, I'm going to have to do this automation. Let's do this now and let's start investing in it and make sure we're doing a good job at it, maybe bringing in some consultants and having them take a look at the, the kind of automation we're doing, thinking back to the opportunity calls we were just talking about, and are we doing the right things or not? And are we doing it in time? I was going to say that's related directly to opportunity cost. Yes. You're trimming off the ability of the business to react to the future changes in the market if you are left with a manual process rather than doing things automated. So this is, this is a good way to push forward to a business person and, you know, deal with the business pieces of it and say, this is one of the things you've gotten that you've got to work. There's another piece to this as well is rework due to human error. If you're still using manual processes and you decided, I don't have time to go do this automation. <laughs> In fact, that, that just triggered a, a memory from way, way back when I was a, a junior engineer working right out of college. I wanted to go use a microprocessor for doing some testing that we were doing on a, a system we were delivering for a customer. And one of the, the more senior fellows said, why are you doing that? It's so much easier to just to do it this way. <laughs> Talking about the manual alternative instead of using a computer to do it. Because in those, those days, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm from the dark ages, if you will, where it was mini computers and microprocessors were the new kid on the block. And like, why are you using that microprocessor? It takes more time, blah, blah, blah. Well, I don't have to do rework and, and stuff like that. I can automate this whole thing. You run into that mentality sometimes, so you have to watch out for that. But uh, the, the key point there was rework due to human error. You want to avoid that with the manual processes. You need to do the automation. You need to get on board with it. So where does, where does I'm, not kept, I'm not grasping, though, where 
rework fits in? Are you saying rework of the manual process, like having to put in step two B in between two and three because a human messes things up and you just figured that out? Or yeah, what what do you mean by that? Well, the manual processes, as we discussed earlier, process complexity, quality control, sometimes the steps are skipped and oh, you didn't check that the network was working the way you expected it to before you put that change in. Okay, so now let's go start troubleshooting and all that winds up driving delays in implementation. Gotcha. So humans aren't going to always follow the steps. Sometimes you've got to fix that after the fact. You don't have to do that when it's automated. Exactly. So maybe that points a little bit of a stretch and, and tends to circle back to things we've already covered, but it, it's still there. The business is in a less competitive posture relative to its peers. You know, one, one uh, property of this that seems to relate um, to what we're talking about is uh, you can get feedback a lot more objectively and a lot more cleanly from an automated process than you can from a human. You can tell an automated process to debug right? You can tell it to tell me what you're doing and log what you're doing. When there's a manual process that a human is following, you're not going to get any sort of objective feedback from that. Even if they, you could convince them to write down the results of everything in the steps, uh, it's, it's going to be totally biased and filtered through the experience at the moment. Yeah. A good example is I was just looking at uh, somebody's BGP implementation and they had AS numbers that use the, the longer range AS numbers, 650,000. Okay, I can see easily going 65,000. You oh, drop yeah. a zero out of reading the AS number and, oh, it means something entirely different. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely true. All right, so that's all really good. I think we've covered it pretty well. Any other thoughts on this, Terry, before we wrap up and uh, call it a night? There's an interesting article you know, talking about this whole process and staff and the strategic views versus tactical views. Um, folks should go take a look on the internet and look for an IEEE article that I found many years ago. So it's by the Institute of Electrical and Electronics Engineers, how to be a star engineer. And you can find it out easily on any your favorite browser searcher. <laughs> go search the inner tubes, it's, it's easy to find. Okay. Really good tips for how to be a star engineer. And uh, it applies to a lot of the stuff that we've discussed. Awesome. So Terry, where can people find you if they want to listen to you or watch your blogs or watch what you're doing or figure out when you're going to retire? Because I know it's eventually coming. (laughs) (laughs) Retire or croak? I'm not sure which. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I don't know. I've always said I just wanted to die in the saddle. It may happen. Who knows? (laughs) Yeah. My wife says, no, you're never going to retire. So anyway, I blog at netcraftsman.com. I blog at techtarget.com, nojitter.com, and I do some stuff on LinkedIn. I am not on Twitter, and I don't do the book of face. That's fine. I don't, I don't do the book of face either, and I'm barely on Twitter, so that's good. So Tom, <clears throat> I haven't um, seen any blog posts. Yeah. They're, they're in the queue. They're not quite ready. <laughs> I think you need to tune your QoS algorithm and get those things out. That's what I think. I think you need to do, you know, some random early drop or something and get the ones out that are good or, I don't know, do something there, Dan. 
So how can people get in touch with you, though, if they're not on your blog, which is like just sitting there doing nothing? <laughs> well, I don't know. If I start doing random early detection, you might get like half sentences on the blog. <laughs> I, don't, I mean, do you want? Okay, I can do that. <laughs> I'm on Twitter at Tom Ammon and LinkedIn at Tom Ammon as well. All right. I'm Russ White. You can always find me here at the hedge rule11.tech, LinkedIn. Just don't PM me on Twitter because I don't answer. <laughs> people PM me or DM me on Twitter all the time and I'm like, it falls into my spam folder. So thanks for joining us, Terry, and uh, we'll catch you next time on The Hedge. Welcome. Thank you. Subscribe to The Hedge on your favorite podcast service or follow along at rule11.tech.